my god. My god, he's back. Yeah, he is. So, Michael, I mean, first question ahead of next year, is Donald Trump the next president of the United States? That's still my base scenario, yes. You're listening to Macro Sunday, hosted by Andreas Dino. Happy Sunday, everyone, and welcome back to the Macro Sunday podcast. I'm Andreas Steno, founder and um, CEO of Steno Research, your independent macro and geopolitical research shop. This is the final podcast of the year. Uh, and in this podcast, I'm first of all joined by my partner in the company, Mikkel Rosenwald. Welcome to you. Thanks a lot. You run our geopolitical offering. Uh, and given that this is the last podcast of the year, we're trying to look a bit ahead to 2024 and whether <laughs> we should expect some of the geopolitical tensions to be solved next year. Uh, so we'll spend the first 10 minutes on debating Uh, the geopolitical year ahead, before we invite a uh, friend of the house, Marvin Bath, uh, former uh, head of FX strategy at Barclays, uh, but also former chief economist of international affairs at US Treasury to discuss the year ahead in financial markets. But I know Marvin loves discussing <laughs> geopolitics as well, so we'll probably also touch upon that in 10 minutes' time. But Mikkel, one of the sort of Um, maybe the flip side, I should say that, of running a weekly show is that we um, we had to record a uh, podcast right around Christmas, and yeah. we have to record a podcast <laughs> right around New Year's Eve as well here. Um, but now that we are on the verge of a new year, um, I think it's very timely to take sort of a status on some of the big conflicts out there, and whether we should expect geopolitical tensions to fade or the opposite next year. And I know you hold this topic very dear uh, when we discuss Ukraine-Russia initially. I mean, it seems like two, 2023 has been a year of stalemate, basically. Absolutely. So yeah. what about next year? <laughs> Absolutely. And I expect more of the same, uh, yeah. to put a headline, put a, put a headline on it. Uh, basically, what, what we've been seeing since the beginning of the war has been a, a flow back and forth of the initiative in the war. Mm. Obviously, Russia had the initiative... Uh, The beginning of the war, they initiated the war, uh, but soon after Ukraine were able to, in the, uh, the fall of 2022, were able to to push back the Russians in some key areas. Since then, it's been a, a sequence of shifting initiatives, shifting offensives, none of them really gaining anything. We had the large battle of Bakhmut, we had the Ukrainian summer offensive, now we're seeing the Russians going on the offensive. And the only thing that's really happening is that a lot of guys are losing their lives down there. So right now it's a very tragic situation. If we try to look at it from a, a strategic point of view, um, the Russians are, are, in my opinion, in the best situation right now. And they have been for, for more than a year. Uh, yes, they're losing a lot of men, also more men than Ukraine, but somehow they're able to stomach this. Mm. Uh, we haven't seen any major new uh, waves of Russian mobilization. This means that they're able to keep up the mobilization through incremental means in the Russian society, uh, which is uh, quite an impressive feat given the, the number of losses down there. And if you look at the situation on the ground, well, they, are, uh, they haven't managed to provoke a regime change in Kiev. They're not going to do that anytime soon. They haven't been able to pull Ukraine back into the Russian fold of nations, but they have been able to, to force sort of, sort of a, a split up of Ukraine. Uh, into the eastern or western part, you could say, uh, and I think I actually think Putin is quite uh, uh, content with this, with the situation on the ground, and that leaves the dilemma in the hands of the West. Because are we going to keep pouring money into Ukraine when the front line isn't really moving and there's no really no uh, vision of how Ukraine is going to retake these territories? And that's the the debate that's going on right now in the EU as well as in the US. So I think uh, Putin is likely playing playing the long game here and he he has quite an okay position uh, f from a certain standpoint. And I mean, US politics will obviously pay, play an important part of this uh, discussion into next year. We'll get back to that in just a second because I want your take on the situation in Gaza as well. Um, I mean, from what we hear from... Um, various spokespersons from the uh, Israeli Defense Force, they're contemplating a, a long-term battle here. Uh, so what does long-term mean? Um, is it all next year? Do you expect some sort of ceasefire next year? Well, uh, unlike Ukraine, there there are some geographical points to, to, to look at here. The 
the battle of operations is, is, is very, very limited to the area of Gaza. So at some points, the one side or the other is going to win this. <laughs> I mean, uh, at some point, Israel is going to, going to run out of targets. They're going to be content that they have now destroyed Hamas. The big question for me, so, so I think in a couple of months, perhaps, mm. we will see, uh, at, at the very latest, we will see Israeli offensive operations stalling. Um, what I'm mostly concerned about is the, uh, the future for Gaza, the future governance of Gaza, because um, basically the... I see three scenarios. One is if the Israelis pull out, they say, okay, we've done enough, um, and, and, and simply pull out all their troops like they did in 2005, then Hamas will simply regain the power like, like we saw in, uh, in Afghanistan with the, with the Taliban. That's one scenario. Of course, the Israelis don't want that. That's the whole point of the campaign is to get rid of Hamas. What's the alternative? Well, the only alternative thus far has been a true, hardcore Israeli occupation of Gaza with Israeli soldiers marching around the streets. And that's uh, definitely not a long-term solution either. They have no uh, support in the population in in Gaza, obviously. So so that's not a good good solution for the Israelis either, but but could be the, the lesser of two evils. The best solution. And that's where my hope lies, is that some of the Arab neighboring countries will step up, take responsibility for their uh, fellow Arabs uh, within Gaza. And we've seen some reports that, that uh, yes, Hamas may have uh, rejected a ceasefire recently, but, but what I took mo- most note of uh, uh, in those reports was the fact that this ceasefire seemed to be brokered by Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. Mm. And that's some of the countries you would be looking at to step in and, and, and govern Gaza, basically, because they have a much stronger affiliation to the Palestinian populace in, in, in Gaza. Uh, they have the money, uh, especially Qatar and Saudi Arabia. They have the, uh, uh, the closeness, the military uh, institutions to do this. So that's, that makes me somewhat hopeful uh, for the situation down there, that some of the Arab neighboring countries are stepping up to take responsibility uh, for the situation long term. And it could ultimately open the door for the deal between Israel yes. and Saudi Arabia again. Absolutely. Uh, which could be of great relevance to the oil market, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. I, absolutely. I think Israel would would, would, would would love for the Saudis to to put in sort of a puppet government in Gaza, some some kind of government who can keep calm, stop throwing missiles at Israel. Right. Uh, then I don't think the Israelis are interested in much else from Gaza. Uh, and that could open up the, the big Riyadh Accords that, that's, yeah. that's been the debate. I expect this, I hope and expect this to be the case during maybe during Q1 next year, to, to, to be more specific. That was a piece of good news, I think, Mikkel, that we, Hopeful. Uh, that at least hopefully uh, we'll get to such a scenario uh, by the end of Q1 or thereabout next year. Mikkel, U.S. politics next year uh, will take center stage, basically, with Absolutely. the presidential election in November. Um, and before we discuss the ramifications for global geopolitics, I'd like to play the Donald Trump soundbite of the week. Um, Donald Trump is an avid follower of opinion polls, uh, and uh, not least opinion polls of his opponents. Uh, so here's Donald talking about how various candidates in the primaries are faring in opinion polls. Well, we like Ramishwamy. You know why? Because he likes Trump. I like him. I tend, I mean, this is, this is probably a personality defect, but I tend to like people that like me. But if you take a look at uh, Hutchison, this guy's still in the race. He's been at zero. Hutchison has been at zero for six months, and he's still out campaigning. Ada, I call him Ada. It's Asa. I have to say it's Asa because otherwise they'll say, oh, he didn't know his name. He didn't know. No, I call him Ada. We love you. It's a more appropriate name. But no, this guy's out. This guy's out campaigning. He's been at zero. One poll had him zero with an arrow pointing less. That means he's at less than zero for months he's been campaigning. Does he have nothing better to do? And who opposed? Oh, he says, what about Chris? Please, sir, do not call him a fat pig. We cannot call him. He says, what about Christie? He's a fat pig. You can't, you can't call No, look. Please do not call Chris Christie a fat pig. Okay? It's not appropriate. Because you're not allowed to use the word fat. Use the word pig, but you can't use the word. Oh, my God. My God, he's back. Uh, yes. So, Michael, I mean, first question ahead of next year. Is Donald Trump the next president of the United States? That's still my base scenario. Yes, I expect him to be. Uh, I still think he's, uh, first and foremost, he's uh, the clear uh, frontrunner in, in the Repo- Republican nomination. 
even if he's barred from from entering the the the, the primary ballot in some states, uh, they'll figure that out. Uh, he, he'll win nonetheless. And in the in the uh, uh, in the general election, um, the polls are showing s- small edge to Trump right now. That may well flip, but but um, when you count in uh, the fact of Robert F. Kennedy, we're not still not sure how how big a campaign he's going to lead. But but it's looking to be quite big. He has quite the following on social media, and he's going to primarily draw votes away from uh, uh, from Biden and and in some of those voter demographics. So. Uh, the way I see it, everything points to tr- to, to Trump right now. Uh, is, is it a slam dunk? No, uh, but I would say at least a 60-40 chance. So assuming that Donald Trump uh, is back uh, in the White House by January 25, um, does that change the outlook for Russia or Ukraine here? It could. It mm. could very well. Uh, I don't think Trump is, uh, or, or let me phrase it another way, I think Trump will make uh, end the wars uh, one of his major campaign slogans. And I think this will uh, be a very, very strong selling point for his campaign uh, throughout the the, the, the election season. Uh, and when he, when or, or if he gets elected, uh, a lot of people talk about that he's going to, and uh, he's going to boast about that and he's going to solve the Ukraine war in 24 hours and whatnot. Um, the point is, I'm not sure of Vladimir Putin is willing to make any deals uh, because, as I as I mentioned before, Putin is is, is in quite a good uh, quite a good place. So, to 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 sum it up, um, I, I like to make some some predictions so people can can hold me accountable for that. I don't expect any large scale peace deal over Ukraine and Russia or between Ukraine and Russia during, throughout twenty four twenty five, but. In uh, in the West, we need to learn uh, not to be so black and white about war and peace. There are many gray areas in between that. And I think that's where we'll find ourselves uh, heading into 2025. I think the, the war will tone down, scale down, uh, de-intensify, and we will find ourselves in sort of a murky situation where Ukraine is at war, but not really at war. Uh, some of the areas is annexed by, Nos- by Russia, but not really annexed by Russia. Uh, and that's exactly the situation that, that, that Putin wants Ukraine to be in, this sort of in-between limbo between the West and Russia. That, that's his best case right now. That, that's where he has Ukraine. And it's going to be incredibly hard for the West to, to, to change that fact on the ground. Miguel, now we've allowed you to forecast next year <laughs> yeah. in geopolitics. Uh, but given that, I, I think we need a laugh. <laughs> Absolutely. And, um, former president of the Russian Federation, Dmitry Medvedev, yes. um, he took twi- to Twitter, I think, on New Year's Eve of 22. Yeah. Um, with a few predictions for 23. <laughs> let's so, just run uh, run some of them over. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so this, this is a year ago. <laughs> yeah. Let's let, let's just have them. Um, point one, oil price will rise to $150 a barrel. No. No. Gas price will will top $5,000 per 1,000 cubic meters. No. No, not nearly. The UK will rejoin the European Union. No. Within the year? No. <laughs> no. Uh, the EU will collapse after the UK's return. No. Uh, Poland and Hungary, Hungary will occupy the western regions of Ukraine. No. No. The Fourth Reich will be created in Germany and neighboring countries. <laughs> no. Uh, war will break out between France and Germany. No. no. Uh, Northern Ireland will separate from the UK and join the Republic of Ireland. No. Uh, civil war will break out in the US. Um, you, some would argue this, but but not really, not in yeah. the way he, he states it, because he's very specific. California and Texas will become independent states. <laughs> Texas and Mexico will form an allied state, and Elon Musk will win the presidential election in a number of states. Um, Elon Musk could still win the election. We could give Medvedev that. Yeah, yeah. There's still some, some time for that, but uh, yeah. Uh, number nine, all the largest stock markets and financial activity will leave the US and Europe and move to Asia. Um, not really, uh, no. not really. Uh, if you read Twitter, it's about to happen still, but uh, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> let's leave that for another program. And finally, the bread and wood system of monetary management will collapse, leading to the IMF and World Bank crash. The euro and dollar will stop circulation as, as the global reserve currency and digital fiat currencies will actually be used instead. Uh, not quite, not quite. So this is rule that out no. over a like decade long horizon but um some of them could still be in play over coming years but 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 this was very specifically for 2023 we have to give him a, a an 0 for 10 for this so yeah we have uh so i i guess the conclusion here is don't forecast you politics after you've had your bottle of champagne no. <laughs> do it before yes the bottle of champagne that's what we've been doing here yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah we're not drunk no no yet uh in this podcast absolutely Mikkel, um it's time to invite um Marvin Bath to the uh, Macro Sunday podcast, a friend of the house, uh, 
great analyst uh, to talk about the financial year ahead. Let's hope that uh, Marvin is more accurate <laughs> than Dimitri uh, Medvedev. And as per usual, we introduce our guest of the week with a uh, piece of music. And um, since Marvin is the former head of FX strategy at Barclays, he holds the topic of the US dollar very dear. So here's Alo Black with the song, I Need a Dollar. Now my great pleasure to introduce Marvin Bath, now an independent macroeconomist at Thematic Markets, but with a great curriculum from Barclays and the U.S. Treasury, among other things. Marvin, it's a great pleasure to host you here at the Macro Sunday. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me on. I'm really uh, excited about it. Marvin, since this is the last podcast of 2023, I'll allow you the chance to talk about markets through this year first. Um, if we look at markets across assets, what surprised you the most through this year? Uh, that's a, a good question. I would say um, the the most consistent thing that I was surprised by was probably the lack of macro credit events. So I started the year expecting more of those given the rise in real interest rates that we'd seen in 2022. Um, and um, those didn't manifest. Now, the broader theme that I ha had related to credit, that it would be a trade-off between winners and losers, right? That ultimately the rise in real rates was actually a fundamental thing. It's being driven by a fundamental um, phenomenon in the economy that I think many people have missed. Um, that I've termed localization, which is about automated production at home becoming much cheaper than globally outsourced. And that's really what's driving the unwinding of globalization, not some sort of trade policies or other things like that. Yes, those have accentuated it, but it was really that. And so the winners obviously are going to do fine because they're the ones causing the rise in real interest rates. But everybody who was not participating in that, was leveraged to globalization and had um, been addicted to low real interest rates of the previous decade, were of course going to suffer. So it was, you know, it was classic Schumpeterian uh, destruction, right? That uh, you'd have those, uh, uh, the zombie companies taken out and the good companies eat. Net credit, not so clear, but obviously a lot of um, potential alpha within credit. That did take place to some extent in the corporate sphere, as we saw, but it didn't so much in the macro sphere as much as I was anticipating. I think that's probably going to be, and we'll probably turn to that, I assume, more of a story for 2024 as we go into the third year of higher real interest rates. Other than that, actually, everything went pretty much according to script. In fact, I'd say I've just come off of basically the best sort of three-year run I've had. You know, I was saying at the end of 2020, early 2021, that inflation was not transitory, that the Fed would react to it, and that the Fed would have a 1994 style hiking cycle in 2022, when everyone else was pricing in a maximum of 25 basis points. And that we wouldn't have a recession because, again, it was driven by a fundamental phenomenon that was about real growth, a higher real potential interest rate, a higher um, real potential growth rate. And all of those things happened. Um, I guess we closed the year with some surprises to me, though, mm -hmm. because one of the fundamental things that was um, uh, sort of driving my forecast, particularly for the Fed throughout that period, 
um, was that contrary to what a lot of people thought, that A, they would actually, when they saw they were behind the curve, actually address it and have the guts to do so and that the economy would be fine. And so that was the correct call throughout. What was really surprising to me was at the end of the year, the December FOMC meeting, the willingness they took to just like immediately reverse the clock to back to pre-COVID and say, oh yeah, we're going back to a world of secular stagnation and and inflation's fine. Um, So we're actually going to start cutting rates pretty significantly next year. It's a little bit too early for them to make that call. They might be right, but I think they're on the verge of a potentially a bigger policy error now than they made at the end of 2021, early 2022, when they were too slow to, to, to hike rates. So I think that's the thing that's most surprising me right now. I think that's a perfect bridge to talk about the outlook for 2024 uh, here late uh, December 23. I kind of get the feeling that um, right about everyone and their mother now concludes that inflation is done and dusted as a theme for market pricing. Um, It seems like right about every central bank will have to cut interest rates, at least according to market forward pricing. So what do you make of the market consensus ahead of next year, especially when we talk about central banks and forward pricing? So I do think that um, that provides a, a tremendous amount of opportunity. I mean, obviously, the consensus could be right. Right. Like, you know, it's not always a good idea to bet against the consensus. Um, now, there is a, a fairly consistent pattern through the years that whatever the markets think in the first two weeks of the year is likely what's not going to happen. <laughs> right? So so there's maybe a good reason to bet against the consensus for that. But I think the broader view is that actually the interesting thing is um, that if you look at markets have actually consistently held this secular stagnation, inflation is transitory view throughout this whole process. They were actually laggards to pick up on it. I mean, I know bond bond traders and bond markets love to say that, you know, they see everything ahead of time. No, they were completely caught off guard by all of this. That's why they had one of the worst years ever. (laughs) Two of the worst years ever. It was terrible. They were awful at it. And now, but the whole time they were like, no, 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 we're right. We're really, really right. What was the change is that the Fed basically reaffirmed that at the end of the year. That, oh, yeah, actually, our star is lower. It is just like what you guys said. It, you know, it's somewhere, you know, half a percent in real terms to, to 1%. And inflation is going to go back to 2%. And break-even inflations have been at 2% since, like, what, March of last year? Like, markets have been solidly consistent. That's where we're going to go to. After getting it completely wrong for two years. That's a remarkable amount of, one might say, arrogance to believe Mm. that. And so I think that taking the opposite side of that actually, you know, makes some sense here, particularly given that what led me to those views that inflation was going to be more persistent. And and by the way, that didn't mean I didn't expect it to fall this year, like Mm. as the cost shocks. It was all about the fact that expectations had actually risen. And if you look at it, expectations across the measures that we have do show you that they've risen. The other thing is, is that while everyone's jumping up and down about how great the latest CPI and PCE uh, inflation measures in the U.S. are and how rapidly they're falling outside of the U.S., you know, the U.S., which has been ahead of everyone else in this game, if you look, their pattern has been like, you know, advanced by three, four months relative to everyone else. Actually, inflation is stabilized just above 2%. Like, you know, it's above the Fed's target. So that's telling you, or at least that tells me, that actually inflation expectations have risen and that they are driving the potential for higher than expected inflation. And that's why I think it's that last mile, that's that trip from 3% down below or 2% that is actually the most difficult part of this transition and that's what we're facing next year. So I think that trade is actually the easiest and most straightforward anti-consensus trade. 
if we look at the most recent price action uh, across duration assets, it seems like everyone has concluded that it makes sense to add duration risks across fixed income and uh, equity markets into next year. So where do you see this story the most vulnerable to a sticky inflation pattern into next year across asset classes? Well, um, I would have said, and, and for most of this last year, I felt that one-year, one-year rates mm. were the most vulnerable. Um, uh, not so much on equities, because again, remember, if I believe that this story is, fun, particularly from the US side, is fundamentally driven by this localization process, mm. which is why earnings have continued to outperform what people expected throughout, then equity duration is not such a bad bet, right? It's not so, so terrible. And even still, I did expect a gradual increase in um, term premia, which did start to come through um, starting in the summer through about November. Um, but the real problem was that markets kept pricing, the Fed's going to cut next year, the Fed's going to cut next year. And my concern was, no, actually, I think they, they need to hold rates at a higher level for longer, um, just like they had previously said they were going to. So I would have said that it's one year, one year. And I still think, given the aggressive pricing in cuts next year, that that's an attractive um, paying uh, position, i.e. being short one year, one year rates. But, you know, go back to this point that I just made, that the Fed has made what you might say is a very risky, some might say ballsy, <laughs> call that their forecasts are going to be spot on next year. No problem. It's all going to be great because <laughs> they've called the last three years so fabulously. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, they are really risking uh, their credibility on this one, far more so than I think. You get one pass early on in the cycle, but the other is that they, in making this call, they kind of ignored their flexible average inflation targeting point. Like, do you know how many years it takes for them to get back to an average of 2% inflation? Even if inflation fell to 0% right now, it's like literally a year and a half to get there. And they've said, no, 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 but we should start cutting now. So they have really invested their credibility in this call. And if it does not go as planned, I think you're going to start to see serious inflection and term premium out the curve. And so this is a broader duration move, and that is going to have a knock-on effect into equity. I think about a month ago, Bank of America released a um, the monthly survey that they conduct among fund managers, asking them about the pain traits for 2024 in their portfolios. And I think around 5 to 6% of the um, respondents uh, said that they could handle higher inflation and higher long-term interest rates in their portfolio, given their current positioning. So I guess if you're right, it would really be a pain trade for markets uh, in, into next year. Um, so I really like your, your logic around that, Marvin. Um, in relation to the US dollar, um, given what we've seen from the Fed lately, this great pivot from Powell, um, in sharp contrast to what we've seen from other uh, big central banks, at least they weren't as vocal about that pivot as, as the Fed was. Uh, how do you view the dollar into, into early next year? Uh, is the dollar a potential contrarian trade here as well? Uh, well, I've, I've been a contrarian on the dollar since 2018. And... Um, other than a few tactical sell-offs, which is what I consider the current one, I've been correct. You know, if the U.S. is undergoing a renaissance in its manufacturing capabilities focused on localization, and I do focus on the U.S. in this case because I've tried to look for it in other economies, and you don't see the same sort of process taking place. You don't seem to see the same sort of capex boom. You don't seem to see the the, the same sort of import compression, none of these things are happening in the same way that they are in the U.S. There's one country that kind of stands out in that regard that may be seeing it, and that's Switzerland, which, mm. oh, by the way, has a very strong currency again, <laughs> <laughs> which, again, is what should happen if your returns to capital are higher than everyone else's on a risk-adjusted basis, right? And so, you know, the basis for the 
dollar sell-off right now is one, there's been this persistent view that, well, gosh, the dollar's overvalued, it has to come down. Um, that's not a terrible view, but it hasn't worked out very well for the last five years. Um, the second um, is, oh, well, the Fed is the one that's showing us they're going to be the most aggressive about cutting rates. Well, okay, but the Fed is also the central bank with the economy that's doing better than everybody else's. <laughs> <laughs> so if so, one of two things is going to be right here. Either they are going to go down, but everybody else's is going to go down at least as much, yeah. in which case that dollar trade doesn't make sense. Or all those other central banks have a stagflation problem. Generally, currencies don't do well in stagflation. So I don't know. I'm pretty happy to... Uh, Especially your dollar at one eleven right here. I'm pretty happy uh, um, to take the other side of that. Mm. And that is a contrarian bet for next year, at least if we look at the most recent uh, price action as well, Marvin. Uh, one thing I'd like your take on, uh, especially also given your background at the U.S. Treasury, is the current development in um, in dollar liquidity proxies. Uh, we've had a lot of discussions over the course of um, of December around rising dollar liquidity due to technicalities such as the overnight reverse repo facility being depleted at a fast pace due to the um, bank term funding program now being utilized again due to a spread trade and all of such uh, technical discussions. What do you make of the Fed balance sheet into next year uh, and the ramifications for the US dollar and broader assets here? So um, that's one of those areas where I've always had a very uh, um, contrarian view, even contrarian to my you know, Fed colleagues, former Fed co colleagues, on the impact of the balance sheet on um, uh, markets more uh, um, in general, but also on the, on the dollar and others. Um, to me, this is classic Keynes pushing on a string, mm. right? Um, and while, um, you know, it's clear that QE, especially in its earliest stages, had an impact in terms of um, what I would say a forward guidance. It's, it was basically credible forward guidance. Hey, folks, while we're buying bonds, we clearly can't be planning to raise interest rates, right? Well, okay, then, you know, the yield curve comes down on the basis of that, and that should have an impact on asset prices and dollar, which it did. Unfortunately, you know, they've kind of completely blown that now. There's no signal value in that anymore. And in um, in, in the sense that they told us all that they were going to keep buying bonds throughout 2022. And of course, they had to back off of that <laughs> right away. And oh, we got to start hiking rates. <laughs> so there's no signal value. So I, I think they've actually like undermined QE as a, as a weapon for any future um, recession quite significantly. But the flip side is quantitative tightening never really had any sort of signal, hmm. right? It's, it really is once they've started hiking rates, it's really just about getting uh, excess reserves back to zero, which is, that is taking away the drag on banks, which is stuffing them full of reserves they don't want on their asset side and allowing them to go out and make loans instead, which is what they would like to do and returns them to profitability. Like quantitative tightening is a net positive for the economy in terms of facilitating the banking system. Now, the problem is the Fed doesn't know where that line is of excess reserves anymore because the change since 2008 has been um, Basel III and the liquidity requirements that come along with it and things like that. And so that's why in 2018, when they first did the tightening, that's when they started to run into, oh, where is that boundary? And you did start to have some issues. So I'm not particularly worried about quantity quantitative typing and I'm you know on this for the same reasons I don't think QE has that much effects it is really pushing on a stream string I'm not that concerned about the excess liquidity that's developed lately uh, interestingly, into to next year, um, due to a lot of technical reasons, we'll have an addition of, of dollar liquidity, I think. Um, and it will probably remain a theme, even though I mostly agree with you that such technicalities do not matter a whole lot uh, when push well, comes well, to uh, show. Uh, yeah. Andreas, 
if people believe it, it can yeah. have an effect. Yeah, I don't sure. think it has a persistent effect because of that. But to exactly your point, I mean, as I said, I'm a contrarian on that view mm. and lots of people believe it. So if they think that this liquidity has an effect, it is going to have an effect on the short term dollar. It is going to have an effect. But, you know, ultimately, as we've seen, fundamentals drive direction um, in trend. Mm. And so those are the types of moves I would look to counter. Mm. But sorry for interrupting. No worries at all. So if we look at 2024, um, given also the name of your uh, independent research firm, Thematic Markets, what are the main themes that we should worry about already now? <laughs> okay, so uh, look, actually, I'm, I'm actually very glad because we were painting a very positive picture. Yeah. And, and I have been extremely positive. And the themes that have been driving that have been this idea of localization, which I do expect to broaden to other economies. I don't think this is something that the U.S. can you know, keep in a bottle and at, at home and not let out. It's going to spread to the rest of the world. And wherever we see it taking place, it leads to a big CapEx boom. That's why real interest rates are rising, right? Mm. Demand for capital is going up relative to what it was in the past. So that's a very positive thing. And I do think inflation is coming down. I think that, you know, central bank, responsible central banking has helped bring um, or cap expectations. As I said, I am worried that they're perhaps being irresponsible now at the end of their hiking cycle, but hopefully things will go their way and that's all great. That's not the thing that worries me. The thing that worries me is actually geopolitics. Mm. So another big theme that um, I've been focused on for quite a while um, is um, uh, what I call global entropy. So, you know, you have this concept in physics of the natural state of things is for dispersion and um, uh, things to go to uniformity rather than, you know, complexity and concentration. And the whole post-World War II global order has been under assault for 20 plus years now. In fact, I would say its peak was in the late 90s and early 2000s, and it's been declining ever since. But what's happened in the last couple of years has been an all-out assault and an acceleration. So, you know, obviously the, the invasion of Ukraine was mm. a big one, right? Like this is one of the big fundamental rules. What is that? Article 2, Section 4 of the UN Charter, no change in borders. Yeah. <laughs> Just, whoa, throw that one out the window. <laughs> Um, China's talking a, 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 about Taiwan. We're seeing a broadening conflict in the Middle East. And connect the dots here. Shipping in the Black Sea was disrupted first. Mm. Now we have shipping disrupted in the Red Sea. As we are now in a situation where the U.S. and its allies are effectively in a three-front war. Ukraine. Um, the Middle East, mm. and a Cold War with China um, in the Western Pacific associated with Taiwan. Now Venezuela is threatening to open up a fourth front with Guyana yep. in the American hemisphere. There's only so many fires you can put out, right? The U.S. Navy is already being stretched thin, as we can see by the interruption in shipping in the Red Sea. We're going from Black Sea, Red Sea, to Blue Sea. Think about what that, that potential risk is for the global economy. Think about how dependent so many of the world's economies are on trade. If you cannot count on transportation in any sea, or if you see widespread fires breaking out across the earth, that is simply, in, and by fires, I mean actual hot wars breaking out everywhere. And the, the fact that the global policeman is overwhelmed encourages everyone to come out and start those feuds they've had for decades, right? This is actually my biggest worry. I, I actually think this is, forget about what the Fed's doing. The biggest single thing you need to worry about is geopolitics in 2024. It is very serious at this point. And Marvin, how do we, how do we trade that scenario for 24? Buying crude oil uh, calls here? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you know, this is one of these things that's really interesting mm. is that it's actually quite hard to figure out 
um, things like energy seem, seems like a, a, a straightforward one. But mm. like, let me give you an example with um, natural gas. Okay. The world's largest natural gas exporter is now the U.S. Um, and um, the biggest market is Asia. Well, suppose that you do actually have a Taiwan Straits issue next year. Given um, that China actually has missile coverage extending all the way through the first island chain and out potentially to the second island chain, and U.S. submarines are going to prevent anything going into China, Basically, you can consider trade in Asia shut down. Now, first of all, that's a massive effect right there. But just think about what that does to natural gas. All of a sudden, Asian natural gas, you know, you're going to get force majeure everywhere. And so those prices, you know, there's going to be no shipment whatsoever. But that means that the Atlantic market is going to be flooded with natural gas. So the prices you can trade... NYMEX natural gas or, you know, TTF in Holland crash, Mm. right? So there are weird things that will happen in this. And I think that's what you need to think through. So I think, you know, the one, the the, the one thing to to take away from this is that risk premium are going to go up everywhere. Mm. So you need to have some clear hedges on a risk premium. I think localization itself as a phenomenon is a very positive um, one you're still going to take a hit on whatever type of equity you own in that type of environment. The question is, how do you minimize your losses? Well, focus on things that are domestic producers or um, uh, produce um, goods that are going to be essential goods and services um, in when you're cut off from the rest of the world, because that's potentially the threat we're, we're, we're facing. So I think those are the types of things people need to start thinking uh, about. And in that environment, go back to your questions on the dollar. I mean, there's one currency everybody wants to hold when things go really badly. For some reason, we've managed to talk about 2024 for like, 25, 30 minutes without mentioning the presidential election in the US, which is quite amazing. Uh, so I'll allow you a few minutes um, to, to touch upon that topic as well. Uh, given this geopolitical backdrop that we just discussed, um, would your worries change if we had a change of leadership in the White House? Um, I think it actually accelerates them. That's, mm. my, that's, my, that's my concern. Um, I think that, uh, and this is not a political statement, it's Mm. just uh, take a look at what's happened. Um, U.S. adversaries have viewed the Biden administration as very accommodative. And so if you think that you have chances to make real gains in, say, Ukraine, if you're Russia, um, in, uh, you know, potentially retake Taiwan if you're uh, China. Um, you know, uh, the Venezuelan crisis is entirely self-inflicted, right? The, you know, U.S. unilaterally gave Venezuela <laughs> um, uh, sanctions re- relief in exchange for uh, taking um, back um, uh, migrants. Um, then. Um, all of those, those and, and many other countries see this is the, their final window to do something. Now, maybe they'll have another window if Biden is reelected. But, you know, one of the things that I think people don't like to ad- admit is that whatever you thought of Donald Trump, you know, the adversaries thought the same thing. They were like, we don't know what that guy will do. <laughs> and so it actually, oddly enough, led to some um, unusual geopolitical stability. I mean, you, you can actually look at like a, um, uh, there are numbers on this on, on shelling uh, uh, in you know the Donbass region and things like that. It actually collapsed under Donald Trump and reignited the day President Biden takes over. Okay, so that's one thing. But I think actually my I'm less concerned about all of those issues, you know, who's president rather than what the um, political environment of the U.S. is going to be like around the election. 
because this is an election that is extremely highly charged. Um, and um, both sides are very far apart. We saw in the last election that, you know, violence resulted from the electoral outcome. I'm quite worried that it's going to be much more significant this time. Um, that is, you know, the one thing that worries me uh, actually about uh, about the dollar. I'm not sure where anyone would go, especially if the rest of the world is actually in, in, in more chaos. But, you know, I think real political instability at the end of the year in the U.S. is a, an absolute potential outcome here. And I'm not trying to be a harbinger of doom. I'm not normally this, but I actually see things lining up next year in really bad form. I kind of share that sentiment and, um, Maybe we should leave our audience with that conclusion ahead of 2024. <laughs> Cheers out there and uh, Happy New Year. Uh, happy Marvin, New Year. <laughs> it was a pleasure hosting you, Marvin. Um, if our audience wants to find out more about thematic markets and your research, where do they find you? Uh, so my website, thematicmarkets.com, is the easiest place. Also on um, uh, Twitter, at Thematic Markets. Um, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm just really uh, um, pleased to have the opportunity to join, join you on Macro Sunday. It's been a, a, a great session. Marvin Bath, thank you very much for joining us, and I hope to see you again in 2024 as a recurring guest on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Back in the studio after the uh, discussion with uh, Marvin Bath of Thematic Markets, a great discussion with a, a great and uh, hilarious guy. I can only urge you to go uh, check out Marvin's offering at Thematic Markets. A couple of things um, I took note of, Mikkel. First of all, Marvin is very focused on what's ongoing in the in the Red Sea right now. <clears throat> And I mean, uh, given that we are one of the biggest shipping nations on earth here in Denmark, where we're placed, Mikkel, it's, it's also obviously a topic of relevance to us. Um, what do you hear from your sources around what's ongoing in the Red Sea? Is this new uh, Operation Prosperity Guardian uh, from, from the US working? Uh, what are the messages from, from the shipping companies here? It's beginning to work, at least. Mm. Uh, we are seeing more countries uh, sailing the usual route through the Suez Canal. And one possible effect is also that this has drawn Egypt into taking a larger role, mm. taking some responsibility in this, because Egypt, of course, makes a lot of money from the Suez Canal each year. Yeah. So so it's definitely not, not, not in the interest of Egypt to have ships sail uh, uh, to the south of Africa or around the south of Africa. Um, to To, I mean, the... The effect on, on international shipping is uh, could uh, potentially be huge. Mm. The effect from that could be huge, but 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 for that you would need need a, a, a prolonged disruption. What we're seeing right now, some ships taking one or two further weeks, you're not going to notice that in, in, in consumer prices or in markets mm. really. Uh, prolonged disruptions, like we saw the uh, was it Evergreen ship getting mm. stuck in the Suez Canal, that can have some effects, but you you, you need longer effects for that. Basically, um, to, to, to just sum up a little bit of the, the, the Red Sea conflict as I see it, uh, there's a bit of Tom and Jerry going on, if, you, <laughs> if you'll allow that. Um, basically, the Houthi rebels, they're, they're trying to uh, establish themselves as uh, fearsome jihadists who are willing to do what it, whatever it takes to combat uh, Israel. And that's all internal politics within Yemen. They're still just shoring up support within Yemen. And uh, the population in Yemen, as most other Arab populations, are very pro-Palestine. So for them to, to demonstrate how uh, willing they are to take on Israel uh, uh, is a very strong internal weapon for them. Uh, how can they do that? They tried to launch some, some rockets towards Israel, uh, had no success in that. It's much easier for them to, 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 to shoot some ships out in the open sea. Mm. Obviously, that... They knew this was going to prov provoke some some U.S. Uh, response, um, which is good for the U.S. Navy as well. And that's where the Tom and Jerry effect comes in, because this is this is good for both parties as long as they're fighting each other. Mm. The U.S. Navy send, gets to send the signal that whenever global supply chains, uh, especially the shipping lanes, are threatened, you call the U.S. You don't call Beijing, you call Washington. Uh, and that's a very, very heavy signal and symbol to send out here, because the, the Chinese have been trying to Uh, increase the dominance over world trade through the Belt and Road Initiative, the Pearl of Strings, etc. This is the U.S. basically saying, well, 
okay, okay, you're buying a lot of ports around the place, but if if there's troubles with international shipping, you call the U.S. So they're manifesting their 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 place as the guarantors of of, of global trade, and that's very very strong symbolic move. And it is basically hand in glove with my dollar view here. Uh, we've had plenty of discussions through the year on the risk of. Uh, for example, the Chinese yuan replacing the dollar as uh, the mean of trade globally, as the global reserve currency number one. Um, and I constantly get the question, what backs the US dollar? Well, aircraft carriers do. They do. And that is uh, basically the point here. Yeah. Mikkel, the other topic I discussed with with Marvin in length uh, was the topic of dollar liquidity. Um, and I, um, I think Marvin is onto something when it comes to the actual ramifications uh, of dollar liquidity, you get a lot of impact from liquidity trends short term, because a lot of people trade those trends, while the long term uh, impact is is debatable, at least. Uh, but we wrote a primer last week on dollar liquidity trends into the first quarter of next year. Uh, I've spent countless hours looking through all of the components of the Fed balance sheet and what to expect from them in the first quarter. And I'll leave it at this. You should expect something similar to a QE light scenario for Q1, if not a full-blown QE scenario. Liquidity will increase rapidly due to the fast depletion of the overnight reverse repo program, due to a sudden window of opportunity um, in the bank term funding program, the BTFP, um, potentially running out on March 11, uh, and due to the typical seasonality in the Treasury General account, all three factors will push liquidity into the system next year uh, to an extent that we haven't seen uh, since the big QE back in 21-22. So ultimately what I'm saying here is that you should expect the dollar to start on a weak footing next year. Um, <laughs> despite our discussions on, on aircraft carriers backing the dollar, uh, you should expect a strong start to the year for duration, uh, both in fixed income and, and equity space. And um, likely some of the smaller altcoins will outperform Bitcoin, if I'm right on this. Um, all of this will be readily available for you on our webpage, stenoresearch.com. Uh, I've written a primer on the dollar liquidity outlook. I've uh, also released various pieces on the ramifications across assets. Uh, so go check out um, our portfolio, our research pieces on dollar liquidity and the ramifications for uh, markets across assets on stinnerresearch.com. As always, two weeks free trial uh, if you um, become a client of ours, Miguel. Absolutely. With those words, I think it's uh, about time to uh, wish everyone a happy new year and remind you of our disclaimer in this podcast because... Those ideas just presented, they're not always accurate. Not Probably not as bad as Dimitri Medvedev's <laughs> no, uh, forecasts. <laughs> we don't hope so, at least. But um, here is our disclaimer of the show. Sometimes maybe good, sometimes maybe shit. Referring to our <laughs> uh, trade ideas here in uh, in the podcast. Mikkel, great to see you. Likewise. And uh, to those of you watching or listening, very happy new year. And uh, we'll see you again next Sunday. Mm -hmm.